And uh, we're right back in uh, to the Old Testament, right back into Old Testament narrative. And we'll pick back up where we left off in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 4. And this is our first look at what is life going to be like outside of Eden. And uh, as we look at this text, as we looked at all the texts that we've been looking at, whether it's the genealogy or whether it's Genesis 1 to 3, uh, we're really seeing that in the scriptures uh, that there's just one long story, the story of the gospel, that the stories, especially of the Old Testament, tend to be uh, moralized. In, in other words, the, the text today is about murder. And if you were like, man, I needed a good New Year's Eve, a, a good New Year's sermon uh, for my resolutions, uh, we'll keep, make a pretty easy one here. Just don't murder. Let's just set a really low bar here and just try not to murder anybody in 2022 and you'll be in good shape. And that's the way you could view this text. Uh, but that is not the way that the scriptures are set up, that what we have in every scene of the scriptures is that we have the story of the gospel, that Jesus has come, uh, even though we're sinners, to redeem us and bring us back into Eden where we can dwell with God the Father, with Him the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. That's the whole point of the scriptures. And so that's where we're driving for today, and I'm not making this up. It's sitting right there in the scriptures if you're looking for it. And so uh, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 4 today. Let me pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, uh, we do pray for Justin this morning. Pray that, uh, Lord, that you would uh, bring his body back in to equilibrium. Lord, that this sickness will come out of him uh, quickly. Lord, that he would feel well. Lord, pray that Betsy and the kids don't get what he has. And um, Lord, that you would protect them. And Lord, we are, we are mindful of so many uh, this holiday season that uh, are hurting for any variety of reasons. Lord, we think about our brothers and sisters in Eastern Kentucky uh, who have lost much this year and that Christmas was very, very different for them. Lord, we think about those uh, who were in the cold uh, this time last week. Lord, we uh, think about all those who are hurting uh, today. And so, Lord, I pray that we are not exempt from that. Uh, Lord, we may look like we have things together, but Lord, we know that when uh, any of us look under the hood of our lives, that we see that things aren't as they should be. And so, Lord, that's why we're here. We need your touch. We pray for these things in your name. Amen. Have you ever thought about why it feels so good to be angry? Have you ever thought about that? Why does it feel so good to be angry? I mean, think about being a sports fan. I mean, yesterday we had, uh, we had the dual bowl game and uh, UK-UofL at one time. And uh, I, I love watching UK beat UofL by more than 20, don't you? Uh, more than 20 in football, more than 20 in basketball. I'll, I'll take any variety of beating UofL. But what I have noticed over the years, that, at least in regards to sports, is that if I weren't watching UK, my next favorite watch is probably to watch UofL because I just want to see them lose in anything. Same thing goes with the Bengals. If the Bengals aren't playing, my next favorite game to watch are the Steelers because I just want to see them lose. Why do we do that? Why do we... Uh, why do we like hating these teams? Well, I think it's just like the rest of our lives. We hate feeling weak. I mean, I feel weak when the Bengals get beat by the Steelers over and over and over and over again. And I just want to see someone else do it. And so because we feel weak, we respond by getting angry. Because when you're angry, it's, it's almost impossible to feel like you're a victim. When you're angry, you're just responding to what feels threatening, to what feels unfair, you're just responding to being taken advantage of, of being violated, or at least the feelings of being taken advantage of and being violated. So your anger very much serves as a function of restoring to you a sense of righteousness, 
a sense of control, a sense of dignity, a sense of respect. And the other thing is your body really likes being angry too. Your body likes it, at least in the short term, because it gives you this surge of adrenaline. It gives you this illusory view of being invincible. And when I think about being angry, I think about National Lampoon's Christmas, don't you? I mean, think about Clark Griswold. He loves Christmas, everything about it. But when he goes about experiencing Christmas the way that he wants, nothing seems to go right, does it? His Christmas lights won't work. He has a squirrel jump out of his Christmas tree into his face. He has unexpected family show up at his house. The food is overcooked. And you see him kind of holding it together throughout the movie. And he's getting, things are getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And then finally, as he's expecting his year-end bonus to come, it comes in special delivery. He gets this envelope from his work. He's expecting a big check so he can pay for his in-ground pool that he's having installed. And he opens it up. And what is it? It's the Jelly of the Month Club. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And you see Clark Griswold launch into a legendary rant about how cheap his boss is. And we love to see Clark like this, don't we? But if your anger, maybe it doesn't come out the way that it does for Clark. Maybe yours isn't as explosive, but it's just as pervasive. And it's easy to minimize our anger when we feel justified for our anger. But Jesus takes our anger very seriously. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus equates anger with murder by saying that they are the same thing. Now, I don't know about you, but when I view humanity, I view that 99.99% of all humans are innocent of murder. And in some sense, they are. I mean, there are murderers among us, but they are very few in number. But Jesus, on the other hand, would say that we're all murderers because we have all been angry. So it's very timely for us to take our anger more seriously. It's time that we second-guess our anger and we see it as a dangerous force in our lives. And perhaps there's just no better biblical narrative than the one we find in Genesis 4 to evaluate our anger. So let's start reading in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the first fruit of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and they were in the field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. 
When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to my Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word of the Lord. We'll look at three things this morning. One is, I want us to see the nature of anger. I want us to see God's response to anger. And I want us to see how we overcome our anger. So let's start with the nature of anger. Um, Everything about this narrative is about this brotherly friendship that they have with one another. There's There's Cain and there's Abel. I don't know if you notice in just the reading... Almost every time it says the word Abel, it it describes him as his brother, like you didn't get the point. But what the author is trying to do here, what the narrator is trying to do, is to show us their relationship. They're brothers, and they both come to worship. See, they're like a lot of us who've grown up in the church. They've been hearing stories about their God all of their days. They've heard Adam and Eve sit around the dinner table and recount what life was like before the fall. They've heard Adam and Eve tell the story of their demise with the serpent. Cain and Abel, they've heard heard from their parents, Adam and Eve, about a promise that one day someone would come from Eve who would have victory over evil once and for all. They've also seen Adam and Eve overwhelmed with God's grace as they realize how they have been able to be fruitful, multiply in spite of their sin. See, Adam and Eve, they they understand that anything good that's happened to them is totally God's grace. They know they don't deserve anything. And because of that, they've been worshiping and they've been teaching their sons to worship. And worship for them looks like it does for the rest of the Old Testament. They offer sacrifices and they do this in a rhythmic fashion. They do this frequently. And Cain offers produce because he's a farmer and then Abel offers a lamb because he's a shepherd. And the important thing to note is not the difference in kind, but the difference in quality. See, Abel's sacrifices are said to be his first fruits. Abel's sacrifice is said to be of the fatty portions. And no such words are used for Cain's sacrifice. It just says that he produced some of the produce for his offering. But these are clues. These are clues that show us the kind of worship that Cain offers. Cain, by giving his first fruits, means that worship is a priority for Abel. For Abel to give the fatty portions mean that these are costly to him. Those are the good parts of the meat. But no such words are used for Cain. And the absence is deafening to us. And so we get the evaluation from God of their worship in verses 4 and 5, where it says that God had respect for Abel's offering but he did not have respect for Cain's. See, Cain's worship was just tokenism. Cain's worship was just behavior without any heart behind it. And this should cause us to ask some questions, shouldn't it, about our own worship? I mean, do do we come to church just simply out of habit? I mean, coming to church is like cutting your grass. It's just part of your life routine. This is especially true for us that grew up in the church. We just come because we're used to coming. 
Our heart's not behind it. It's just tokenism like it was for Cain. Or maybe you just worship to get God off your back. Maybe you come to church, you give a little money, you return, and, and in return you expect God to let you live how you want. You've paid your dues, and now God's got to stay off your back. Or, or maybe you, you worship for leverage, you, meaning that, that now God owes you something. He owes you an easy life, a fulfilled life, a life without suffering, because you've earned it by coming to worship. But here's what happens. When God gives us his evaluation of our hearts, of our obedience, of our worship, and we don't like his evaluation, what often happens is we get angry just like Cain. And that anger for us needs to become suspect. The way we suspect our anger, the way that we second guess our anger to see if it's unrighteous is by looking at some of the clues that we see here in the narrative. So I want to draw our attention to Three characteristics of unrighteous anger that we see in our passage. The first one is, is that unrighteous anger grows. It grows. Anger, anger is like all sin. It grows. It intensifies. It metastasizes. It spreads. It escalates. You see this in Cain's case. See, his sin starts as jealousy with Abel because his sacrifice is accepted instead of his. And then it turns into anger at Abel instead of evaluating why his offering wasn't respected by God. Then he becomes sad. That's why the text says his face has fallen. Then he murders his brother. Then he lies when God confronts him about the murder. Then he's all alone. He's isolated. He's a wonder of the earth and he's cut off from his family. Do you see the progression? You see how it metastasizes. You see how his sin intensifies. So, brother and sister, if you nurse your anger and you focus on just being a victim, then know that sin will run its course with you. It will grow. It will intensify to the point that you're left all alone. That's the natural progression of anger. You burn all the bridges available to you and you're completely cut off from relationship. So unrighteous anger, it grows. It, it also is very subtle. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, there's this really powerful metaphor that sin is crouching at the door of Cain's life. But what does it mean to crouch? I mean, think about it. To, to crouch means to get small. To crouch means to stay hidden. And God is warning Cain at a crucial juncture here. See, at this juncture in the text, all that's happened is Cain's jealous. All that's happened here is that Cain is angry. So he's trying to cut things off. God knows where this is going to head. So he comes at him and he gives him a really stern warning. Because he knows that his unrighteous anger wants to make itself smaller than it actually is. We do this all the time, don't we? We call workaholism just being productive. We call having an eating disorder just one to watch what we eat. We call it an obsession with our physical appearance just being well-groomed. We call being ruthless in business dealings being savvy. We call being stingy, being prudent, and more than anything, I think we call our unrighteous anger just having a passion for justice. See, what sin does is it wants to make itself small, especially in our own estimations. See, think about Cain. 
Eve had to be duped into her sin in Genesis 3, didn't she? But Cain can't even be talked out of his. See, in Genesis 3, Adam tries to blame Eve. Eve tries to blame the serpent when they're confronted. But then Cain, when he's confronted, he denies sin altogether. See, I think if you ask Cain, if you said, Cain, are you an angry person? Are you angry in this moment? I think he'd say, what are you talking about? I'm not angry. I, I, I think he might say something different too. I think he might say, I am angry, but I should be. Abel got dealt a better hand in life than me. God is unjust. How can God not see how hard I've served him? See, his anger is small in his own estimation. But then, here's what happens. When sin is totally hidden from your view, it pounces on you. It uncoils and it, its power is destructive. That's what happens to Cain. He goes from being angry to murdering in about 2.2 seconds in the narrative. He plows right through God's warning, and that's how powerful anger can be. It all starts as a choice, but then it becomes a power that completely masters you. So I think here's a good question for me and you this morning. Do you know your crouching sins? See, things like people-pleasing and sloth and impatience and being overly rigid, loving comfort, all of these things are hard to see. But they're the things that can most destroy you because you don't know they're there. They're crouching. So sin is subtle. Sin grows. And the last thing we see is that sin often throws a pity party. You see uh, Cain's inner disposition in his face, don't you? His face has fallen. He feels sorry for himself. And he's trying to get God to join him so that he can have a pity party. There's no sorrow for his sin in this text. There's no sense of repentance in this text. There's no compassion for Abel. But even after God curses him in verses 11 and 12, he can't muster up repentance. He's still trying to get God to show sympathy to him. He says his penalty is too harsh. And he falls apart as opposed to repenting, as opposed to being sorrowful over his sin. He just has, has self-pity. He, he's just resentful. So unrighteous anger, it throws a pity party. See, it's crystal clear through this whole text that Cain does not want to master his sin. He does not want to master his unrighteous anger. So what does God do with people who don't want to master their sin? What does God do with people who don't want to master their unrighteous anger? Well, I think you'll be surprised. I was. See, when you get to see God's response to Cain's anger here, his unrighteous anger, you see that God doesn't sweep his weak worship under the rug. God doesn't say, well, Cain tried his best. I'll give him a pass. Nope. The narrator is very clear. He does, God does not accept his worship. And Cain knows that God doesn't accept his worship. And that's why he gets so angry. But how does God come to him? How does God come to Cain in his unrighteous anger? Do you see it? He comes by asking him, him questions. It's like he's a guy, God is a counselor here, isn't it? I, I've had the privilege of being around and got a lot of good counselors. We've got several good counselors in our church. And here's what I've learned uh, from good counselors. 
they usually know what's going on with you in the first session or two. <laughs> but they don't tell you. They know if they told you time would be up. They know that we're not usually ready to hear it when we're sitting in counseling. So here's what they do. They give you some time, don't they? They ask you questions, not so that they can learn what's going on with you, but so that you can learn what's going on with you. Same's going on here. God knows the answers to the questions that he's asking Cain. He's not trying to gather information. What God's trying to do is ask questions so that Cain Cain can come to his own conclusions when God would be perfectly just in just pronouncing judgment upon him. But he wants to give Cain a chance to admit his failure. See, God responds by asking questions, not pronouncing judgment. But you see his patient demeanor. God's patient demeanor continues with Cain when he teaches Cain about worship. You see it there in that, right after he starts asking those questions, he gives Cain a do-over. He gives him another chance. Cain can't claim helplessness. He can't claim ignorance. Cain can fight his sin. He knows what God expects for worship. And God's given him sufficient warning. See, brother and sister, sin does not have to rule your life. Unrighteous anger does not have to rule your life. It can, but it doesn't have to. I mean, the, the Puritan John Owen famously wrote, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And the sins that will most kill you are the ones that you're unaware of. So when God starts questioning you, when he starts giving you a clear warning, take heed, friend, it's the voice of your loving Father. But we know that even with God's gentle questioning here of Cain, even his clear warning that doesn't keep Cain from murdering his brother, does it? So you see Cain kill his innocent brother and you ask yourself the question immediately as the reader. You say, what is God going to do with a murderer? We know what he does with a person who struggles with jealousy. We know what he does with someone who's angry. But now what is God going to do? Is now God going to quit being a counselor and come at him hard? That's not what happens. Look at verse 15 and 16. God promises Cain protection. He gives him a mark. He gives him a mark that means that God's guarding his life all his days. In fact, anyone who avenges Abel's life by killing Cain is going to have to answer to God himself. See, Cain was not beyond God's grace. And even though Cain had joined forces with the devil, even though he'd become a traitor in God's kingdom, even though he had killed his brother, even though God had cursed him, God puts a mark on him to protect him all his days. And the mark served as a mark of God's goodness and mercy forever. So you see, you see how this text just drips grace here? Well, the New Testament writers, they knew it dripped grace too. That's why Hebrews 12, 24 says what it does. In Hebrews 12, 24, it says that Jesus' sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let me say that again. Jesus' sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's what Hebrews 12, 24 says. But what does that mean? Well, think about it. In Genesis 4, the blood of Abel is this haunting call of condemnation that speaks out to Cain all the days of his life to remind him of his evil deed. And maybe you know that voice. You have a haunting voice that keeps calling 
out, keeps trying to bring you to repentance. But instead of repenting, you just minimize your sin. You keep throwing a pity party. You ignore the signs of God's grace in your life. And the voice of Abel continues to cry out to you. But brother and sister, there's another voice than the convicting voice of Abel. And it's way more powerful. It's the voice of Jesus and he tells you about his blood. See, if Abel's blood calls out for your condemnation and conviction, then Jesus' blood calls out for your cleansing. And that's what makes it a better word. See, the blood of Jesus, according to 1 John 1, 7, says that it cleanses us from all sin. See, I know your life is like Cain's. Mine is too. I'm unbelievably angry about things that don't matter. I justify, I minimize, I rationalize, I deny. My anger escalates and I do things for which I'm ashamed of. I have a PhD in throwing pity parties for myself. I often find myself all alone with my opinions and my anger. Brother and sister, it's a miserable way to live. But Abel's blood will not have the final say in my life, and he won't in yours either. It's going to be drowned out by a louder voice, a voice that says that my sin has been cleansed by somebody else's blood, not my own. It's Jesus's. It's the blood of the new covenant. A new pact has been made where God has allowed his blood to be spilled instead of mine, and I stand behind that blood. That's the objective truth. I don't need to feel cleansed, but I am. I'm tempted to hear the voice of the old familiar condemnation, the one from Abel, even now. And if you hear that voice as a Christian, what should you do? What should I do? Martin Luther, a German reformer, he wrote a letter to an old friend. that His friend had written Martin Luther a letter first and talks about how he has lost a lot of sleep and He's really struggling with temptation that he just can't believe that Jesus loves him. And here's what Martin Luther writes in response. Here's what he says. He says, in this sort of temptation and struggle, contempt is the best and easiest method of winning over the devil. Laugh your adversary to scorn and ask who it is with whom you are talking. And by all means, flee solitude The devil watches and lies in wait for you, most of all, when you are alone. The devil is conquered by mocking and despising him, not by resisting and arguing with him. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, here's what you ought to say to him in response. You say, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means, for I know. One who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Yours truly, Martin Luther. So brother and sister, take rest. The cleansing blood of Jesus has spoken a better word than the condemning word of Abel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. It's hard to believe that you can love a murderer. Lord, that you promise your protection to a murderer. Lord, that you have spilt your blood for us. Oh, Lord, help us to hear that voice over the voice of Abel.
We pray these things in your name. Amen.